This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Rocket Farm Restaurants. Rocket Farm Restaurants, a consortium of independent restaurants throughout the South that Mr. Coley doesn't just serve good good food. It serves up kind of a university-type atmosphere in supporting its employees. What's going on with Rocket Farm Restaurants? Yeah, I would note, if, you know, in the, in the coverage of this, I would note that, you know, McDonald's is probably best known for Hamburger University. I feel like that was a kind of a miss in the coverage presenting this as, you know, this, this unique thing. And it is unique in some ways. But, yeah, so their, their university features over 20 classes on topics like hospitality management, finance, marketing, diversity. And, you know, it's essentially they're upskilling their workers. You know, we've talked a lot about like the Walmart academies over the years. We've talked about what Amazon has done, having essentially a community college within their facilities to train workers for their next job outside the company. And this is essentially the same, the same type of concept. Frank, one of their, one of their uh, main HR executives said that if basically said that when the company loses a skilled hourly employee to another restaurant for a dollar or more an hour, the replacement cost of that employee is more than $1,200 per person. Talking about the, the cost of turnover. He said in their company, it's closer to 2000 bucks in turnover costs every time they lose an employee. So they're trying to invest and keep their employees so they can manage that risk and, and have some level of predictability. So pretty interesting concept. They've got uh, a number of restaurants, Les Soup in Nashville and The Optimist in Nashville and State of Grace in Houston and Superica Tex-Mex in Atlanta and Charlotte. They've got a nice parcel of uh, independent restaurants, but kind of a, a very interesting approach that they're taking it. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the Starbucks Workers United Union put their cards on the table this week and unveiled their demands before company managers. The menu includes a $20 an hour minimum starting wage, even higher in some places, a 37-hour work week, free health care, and schedules a month in advance. Let the games begin. And speaking of $20 minimum wages, has that become the new normal in the ongoing national debate? Has the fight for 15 become the tussle for 20? We'll take a look. And the labor community has come out with a number of new economic studies to validate their position on the wage issue. Is the industry data, to the point it exists, robust enough to counter? We'll dive into that. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategy partner, Franklin Coley. Mr. Coley, it was a big week in Starbucks land. New CEO takes over, annual meeting, strikes in, 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 at 100 restaurants in 40 cities across the country, protests at the home office, and oh, by the way, the biggest collective bargaining session so far between Starbucks Workers Union and Starbucks management. Where do you want to start with all that? Let's just start with the timing of the CEO announcement, because that's an easy one to quick and get out of the way. Senator Bernie Sanders thought he was going to have the sitting CEO of Starbucks in front of him in the three days before, I guess, the last day of 
um, April 1st, so March 29th, he was thinking he was going to have sitting CEO Howard Schultz in front of him. Instead, the company has Schultz step down early and slots in their new CEO. Now, I don't know if that's going to make that much of a difference in terms of the congressional hearing, but now you have the former CEO talking you know, freely about his opining on his thoughts about Starbucks rather than the sitting CEO. So that was just one small little news blip of about a hundred. You think that was intentional and caused, you think that's directly connected to the, the testimony next week? In my mind, there's like no doubt, but you know, but I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of other pressures and a lot of other considerations and there were other factors. It wasn't a single thing probably, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a totally different position to be up opining as the former CEO versus the sitting CEO. It just, just yeah, Bezos. Yeah, it just it just one hundred percent is. So, by the way, I think that's a super smart move. I, I I am certain that Bernie Sanders was pressing so hard to get him up in front of his committee while he was currently the sitting CEO and before he you know kind of gaveled out. So. But it also you know, coincides nicely. It's it's a cleaner to do at your annual meeting and, you know, no doubt. pass the baton in front of your own shareholders and so forth. So maybe Bernie Sanders staff didn't do their homework well and anticipate that and know when Starbucks annual meeting was. Maybe maybe there's some staffers getting their knuckles wrapped. Yeah. So as always, there's like, you know, a bunch of push points to go into this, but I'm sure that had something to do with it. Anyway, so now we have the former CEO of Starbucks that will be testifying next week in front of the help committee. Joe, where where do we want to go next? I think I'd like to go right to the annual meeting. You know, I I love a good annual meeting. I love the protests and the circus. And, you know, as a former recovering corporate guy, you always got ready for the annual meeting for the the, the band of activists, to, you know, especially in my Walmart days, but certainly my Darden days as well. I, I'd like to go to the work stoppages, Franklin, Franklin, at 40 cities across the country and over 100 Starbucks. Yeah. So in response to this announcement, um, and obviously time, they probably already had this planned, timed with the meeting. They called for a work stoppage and, and a national day of action. And we had we had said, I mean, it's, you know, and to be Nostradamus, but you know, last year we said as we got into 2023, we're going to see more national days of action and more frequent work stoppages as you know negotiations kind of ramped up and got more intense. And that's what we're seeing. I think this is our third or fourth. I can't even remember, but you know, we've had a we've had a lot in the in the past few months. Maybe not since the new year, but going back into December, you know, towards the the end of 2022, we've had. I'm going to say at least three off the top of my head, but we're going to see more of that. And we had that this week, Joseph. Where next? I mean, this is just so much to unpack. I'm just, so let's, let's take it to the, let's take it to the split screen in Washington, DC next. So we have the Democrats are going to haul Howard Schultz up next week. They're going to take him to task. They're going to cane him. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch at the exact same time. We have, Republican Representative Virginia Fox, chair of the Ed and Workforce Committee on the House side, you know, this the the counterpart to help, if you will, on, on the House side is hauling up subpoena and uh, NLRB officials over their mistreatment of Starbucks and preference and favoritism towards 
union organizers during this union organizing campaign. So, you know, you've got this Democrats controlling the Senate, Bernie Sanders and the help committee. And then you've got repubs in the House acting as a tack dog on behalf of Starbucks. So that is this is not the position generally you want your your brand in where you are literally you're becoming like the political football on both sides of the aisle and, and split screen congressional hearings. It does happen to brands from time to time and in different scenarios, and it's important to set your true north and and stay on it. And so that's, I assume, what Howard Schultz will be trying to do next week. So that's a congressional split screen. What's next, Joe? What do we want to get to next? I want to let's 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 wrap it up with let's wrap it up with the contract, the unveiling, the big the big reveal of. Their contract demands is the, the initial move in the, this long-awaited chess game. Franklin, the union laid out their game plan of what they're asking for. Go for it. Okay, so this is the we've we've talked previously about how like all these individual units had to get on the same page in terms of putting forward a slate of demands to the company. That there was kind of an internal game that the union had to win before it could even start to worry about the external game of of winning any concessions from Starbucks. It seems that they have completed that process. And so it seems they have come up with some sort of cogent set of demands. Timing could be better since we've got the former CEO in front of Congress next week. Um, but their their demands are seem to take the shape of a $20 an hour starting wage, which I don't think is super unexpected. I think we've seen we've seen that before. This is probably the part that that this is the part that you found the most interesting, Joe, and that I find the most interesting and probably warrants a, a little discussion. A 37 hour week guarantee of hours for full time employees. It's a super interesting number to settle in 37. 100% uh, healthcare coverage. But then the other piece in the scheduling is scheduling stability, kind of fair scheduling, schedules submitted in advance, basically set on kind of a monthly basis. A monthly schedule. Um, I think it's pretty interesting, a monthly schedule, man. Yeah, we'll see a pause in that. Let's put a pin in that. Let's come back to that. Credit card tipping at all stores. Uh, in some markets, they're asking for higher hourly starting wage than $20 an hour, you know, up to over $25 an hour. But um, those are the main things. So let's 37 hours, Joe, and a month in advance. What, I mean, talk to me about that. Well, you know, it's, it's obviously it's, it's, uh, it's under the overtime threshold for sure. But, you know, that, that's going to give a lot of operators a lot of pause right there. That's going to be, that's going to be tough. Uh, I suspect you'll find operators say, I wish I could have people for 37 hours a week. I wish I could find the stability for people for 37 hours a week. So that may be a moot point. But I guess what, what leaped out to me, what, what, what jumped out to me was what we've been talking about for, you know, ad nauseum post-COVID. And when you go back to the seed acorn of this strife with, with Starbucks, and again, we said it from the top, it wasn't about wages. It wasn't about benefits. It was about getting yanked around. It was about getting yanked around. And, you know, and of course, their, their health and safety protections, they didn't feel were being you know, adequately weighed by the company. 
and we watched the resurgence of these scheduling bills across the country and how they've gone back to the priority list, back on top of the priority list for the for the labor community. And this contract, you know, this starting point, this contract demand shows them, shows that. I suspect they'll 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 negotiate off of some of those wage levels. I suspect they'll negotiate away credit card tipping. I suspect they'll negotiate away some of those regional disparity wages. But I bet you're not going to negotiate an inch on any of this scheduling stuff. Yeah, well, and um, you know, part of I think part of the the big friction point with with the unions. I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing that one of the big friction points with working Workers United and Starbucks Company is that they feel as if union sympathizers or union organizers are not being scheduled or being scheduled down or losing hours. Right. And so they feel that that own the ground decision on, you know, is Sherry going to get extra hours or is Tom going to get extra hours next week that probably their folks are getting the short end of the stick in that and are not getting scheduled as much. And they want this, they want this protection in place, I suspect for for their folks. So I, I think that's, I think that's kind of baked into that as well. Woo, man, it is going to be an exciting week next week. I uh, I got the popcorn ready. Unfortunately, it's daddy and me day at, at my kid's school on that same day. I was worried that I was going to go stand in line and not get in there and the daddy and me day. I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to watch it on C-SPAN like the rest of America. Um, yeah, there's but, a live, for the audience, there's a live feed uh, that will be coming out of you know, the committee's website. On, uh, I'm sure C-SPAN will be covering it. If not, the committee itself will be live streaming it. But uh, it is Wednesday. It will be viewable. What's that? It will be viewable. Bernie Sanders oh, is going to make certain that it yeah. will be available. Yeah. So, you know, listeners, you know, it's kind of like March Madness. Set some time during the week to watch a, a sporting event uh, at an un- unusual time. So uh, we'll have plenty uh, to discuss next week as well. Mr. Coley, remember a, a time not so long ago when President Barack Obama, in one of his initial State of the Union, stood in front of the Congress and called for a 10-10 minimum wage. And at the time, the, the labor community had started rattling the swords. And, you know, before too long, we were talking about $15 an hour for minimum wage. And many of the business community guffawed and laughed and, you know, all shucks. That's that's hilarious. And pretty soon. Myself, myself included. Just yeah. just a little little footnote. Okay. And and before too long, that the, the giggling stopped and uh, the reality set in that that $15 was kind of a real thing and it was, it was kind of here to stay. And, and then a lot of things happened. The economy, you know, caught up to it. Uh, labor shortages. Oh, by the way, a pandemic, $15 an hour seems like a safe Harbor these days. And the, knowing this, the labor community has staked out a new position where it seems like over the last few months, $20 an hour has become the new norm. The center of the playing field. We just talked about Starbucks and their contract demands in the scorecard. We'll talk about a new contract that Disney announced yesterday with their unions where they're going to $20 an hour. Is $20, are we in 2023 with $20 an hour, the same place we were five years ago with $15 an hour? Yes. And we will see close 
two were at a $20 age, $20 minimum wage in those first wave, $15 states and cities, I suspect within the next, you know, maybe not this year, but in the next couple of years, we're definitely, I mean, it is nuts. It is crazy. $20 minimum wage is crazy. Um, I think that this one's, you know, again, the, the, the unions, the, 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 the entire labor activism community, unions included, you know, they, they are, you know, I guess it's because of the nature of their business. They can play the long game. They can play, they can play chess and, and we have to play checkers because on our end, we've got to execute payrolls this week and we've got to run businesses today. It's a little bit of a short-term play. But Mr. Coley, on a, on a lark yesterday, I went and, you know, me and technology, we're not exactly, you know, allies, but I did the best I could and went and got on some job boards like ZipRecruiter and some of the other job boards. And I put in, I, I was, I'm just kind of using Red Lobster as a, as a, as a, as a stocking horse and a couple other brands. Robert, are, are you, are you getting ready to announce you're leaving Align Public Strategies? Well, I, just no, I, I was trying to see what the wages, the advertised wages were out there. And I picked a few, picked a few markets across the country. I was in Montana. I was in Rhode Island. I was in Texas. And, you know, even with the labor shortage, there were still advertising jobs well, well below that $20, well below that, that $20 mark. I was, I was kind of investigating this in context for this conversation. You know, it, it seems like when we were talking about $15, the wage on the street was a little closer to the 15 bucks than the wage on the street now is to the 20. Am I wrong on that? I, I feel like you may be wrong. So... I was driving through, I went to North Carolina for spring break, whatever, two weeks ago, man, last week, I don't know, it's a blur, but I was in 095 in the middle of Georgia, like nowhere, nowheresville. I mean, it was on the side of 95, so, you know, but it was, it was basically nowheresville. It was a brand new box and they were advertising a $14 an hour starting wage with like full benefits. And, uh, own their little placard in the store. And by the way, they were also forcing me to use the kiosk. So that's, you know, they were clearly like training all the, the people there that, you know, there was one person forcing the kiosk and then there was no one else. There was no one behind the, the register. But 14 hours, $14 an hour starting wage in Georgia, like five years ago, in middle rural Georgia, you know, even, particularly 10 years ago, is like, would have been crazy. Um, I, I feel like that's a big jump from 14 to 20 still in Georgia. I feel like it's as big a jump as it would have been from $10 an hour to, well, I guess it's technically by the numbers a smaller jump than $10 an hour to 15, but, or maybe it's equal, but man, it's, that's a big, 20 is a big, big jump. It's a big jump. Well, but we're going to New York and we're and, going, it's going to yeah. happen. And, you know, again, you know, polling data, you know, take it for what it's worth, but there was a bunch of, of data, I think we talked about a little bit last week on the pod, up in Massachusetts, they're talking about a $20 minimum wage and going to the ballot there and showing something like 60, low 60s support for $20 minimum wage. I mean, that's, that's pretty. Let me, let me, uh, let me direct our, our listeners to, to two things this week that I think are super relevant in this this minimum wage fight. And we had something in Midnight Reads. I don't have the headline in front of me, Joe, if if you happen to have that. But the the one the one article that's worth looking at, there's a Politico article 
headline, The Minimum Wage Fight That Will Define the Decade. And it really is about New York. It really talks about the fight between progressives in New York and the more kind of centrist Democrats, including the governor, um, that want a more kind of modest approach to minimum wage that, you know, that indexes to inflation over the long term. The, the other point tied to that, the other thing I want to flag for listeners is McDonald's came out this week and there's a blog post in their website supporting the governor's position in New York on minimum wage. And essentially how they articulated that support was they said, look, it's a minimum wage that applies equally across all industries, which we're in favor of. It's an equal playing field, which is obviously a direct contrast to um, the state of play in California, where the industry has been singled out and discriminated against in terms of these wage hikes. And two, you know, like what they articulate in that post is it's phased in over time. And so it's not an immediate hit. And it includes an inflation escalator, which, you know, they say in the post they like because this makes it predictable for business owner and operators Managing to to manage risk over the long term, to know that year over year it's going to increase and have a sense of what that amount's going to increase by instead of people waking up this morning going, you know what, let's raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour and it's a $5 increase over a year or two years or, you know, it's a pretty steep increase that you can't plan for. And so I think um, that's a big deal for, you know, McDonald's, the you know, a leading voice, if not the leading voice in the industry to come out in support of a minimum wage increase period, but particularly in New York. And I, th- I think this Politico article, if you give it a Google, puts good good context around, you know, why this is an important conversation in New York and elsewhere. And so we're going to have a $20 an hour minimum wage in, in a number of jurisdictions, I mean, not this year, but in the next couple of years. We're going to continue to see this skipping up in those first wave states. And we got to think through how we're going to talk about that. And McDonald's has clearly made a decision about how they're going to kind of talk about it and, and wade into the issue. Frank, on the article that you are referencing was in it went on Wednesday, the 22nd edition of Midnight Reads. It was, you are correct, Politico. Progressives have a new minimum wage goal, $20 and up. So, yeah, it's... There's so much going on here. And like I said, where the Starbucks demands are, the Disney contract, it's like we could we could blow past 20 bucks in another year and be talking about 22 bucks in terms of the national conversation where the 50 yard line is on this. So the issue keeps escalating and uh, we will be covering it as it goes. Well, as our listeners and friends of our of our of our firm know we've talked at length over the over the years about the life cycle of an issue. And Mr. Cole, you and I have talked about how academics talk about the economics of minimum wage increases and the effect they have on the economy. And then part two, you know, step two is the activists take that data and run with it and create a conversation. And then step three is they socialize it among friendly you know, progressive uh, legislators and and get the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens ginned up on it. And step four is they bring on other more moderate uh, legislators and kind of mainstream the issue and, and, and make it more uh, centrist. And then step five, they go through with legislation. And it, we were watching the same thing with minimum wage. 
uh, as we've been talking on the last two segments, just a much more compressed time frame. You know, we talked about the $20 minimum wage. We talked about the union contracts. This week, just this week, there's been a release of two studies, air quotes, studies, as we know, that, that the, the left, you know, has creates a lot of empirical data to, to bolster their, their, their positions. One, the Economic Policy Institute uh, puts out a paper says, that says, low-wage workers have seen historically fast real-wage growth in the pandemic business cycle. Policy investments translate into better opportunities for the lowest-paid workers, basically saying their success in legislatures throughout the country have bolstered uh, low-wage workers. And then, of course, right on cue, uh, UC Berkeley puts out their study as to how minimum wage increases bolster and help small business people. Franklin, I've talked forever about how well choreographed the activist left is. Aren't you impressed that on the eve of all this minimum wage stuff, here comes the data, like the cavalry coming through? It's amazing, coincidental timing, Mr. Kefoffer. Yeah, and it's totally predictable what the results of these these studies are going to find. You know, I, we said it many years ago. I do think it's important that there's research being done because we've embarked in the past five years in this, you know, period of unprecedented kind of cascading minimum wage increases across across the country. And so I, I do think that like it, it's important to capture some of that now and and look at the 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 impacts. Uh, you know, um have they been positive, have they been negative? You know, they've been both, I can tell you that, right? Like there there's no doubt that there's positive and negative impacts um to this. And it without, you know, real kind of researchers getting into this or without the industry taking a look, guess who the ground is seated to? <laughs> seated to, you know, the union-backed EPIs and the UC Berkeleys. And I, I do think it's important over the past five years with all of these wage increases that 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 we, there are groups looking at this, at least at a minimum through, you know, uh, a, a purely neutral way to kind of pick through the impacts. We've seen what's interesting is we've seen it more on the scheduling. We've seen a lot of scheduling studies come out that I, I would say that are pretty even handed that find benefits, but also find major pitfalls. And scheduling is a trickier issue in, in a lot of ways, too. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but I, I think we need more studies in this. We've seen a lot of Fed Reserve studies over the years that have told a much more balanced story of what a minimum wage increase can mean and what the potential negatives are associated with the potential positives. And we don't have those out there. We're going to get a lot more of these. Well, I'm also worried on, on the flip side that the, 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 the current economic climate, going back to the data, the current economic climate has debunked or poked holes in a lot of traditional industry, um, you know, talking points. I mean, we, the, the Pressure on wages and benefits continues to increase, and yet there's been no no job loss. As a matter of fact, we're, we're hungry for workers, so the minimum wage increasing will lead to job loss. That's debunked. I always thought that was a bogus argument anyway, but that's been debunked. 
we 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 said for years, especially in the in the quick service side, that there was not enough elasticity in pricing to to account for that. And this economy has debunked that. I mean, all the you know McDonald's has taken significant price increases and it hasn't interrupted their traffic at all. Um, and, and I think the quick service, you know. By and large, across the board, experiencing the same thing. Darden just posted great numbers this week. So our, our our theory that we couldn't pass that on to consumers has been debunked. I think we're kind of losing the data game. And, you know, they, they've, the other side's always been really good at the data game. We've tried to counter. We don't have many counters right now. Well, we're in a, a super unique economic cycle right now. So I'm with you. You know, the... The lost jobs shutter business argument over a dollar minimum wage increase was always strained credulity in a lot of in a lot of jurisdictions, right? Like, yeah, I, I think that the sky's falling kind of thing, you know, was always a, a tough sell. And particularly when you went back every legislative session, every mandate, you're making those same arguments. I think that's tough. But you know, we are in a super unique economic cycle where everything's inflating, right? All the costs are inflating. And so, um, but this is why we need research to pick through, like, you know, what are the impacts, you know, and and try to control for, for some of that. I mean, look, rural Georgia last week, they were forcing me to go to a kiosk. They did not want me interacting with a human being, right? Like that companies, QSR companies in particular have had the technology for a while to, significantly slim down their labor force within their boxes. Um, it, it's been more of a question of consumer preference and and getting consumers comfortable with mobile ordering or ordering on a kiosk or whatever else. I think it's, it's it seems obvious to me that we're going that direction and it's a question of how quickly. And I think these cost structures are going to play a large part in that. And And that story is not really being told. You know, that, that, it's not not told in a in a smart and thoughtful way, at least, and not studied in a smart and thoughtful way. And I think that's an area that deserves greater attention. If if my future nourishment depends on apps and kiosks, then I am going to starve to death. That is that is that is a daunting future for 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 me myself and I. I do not like that. But interesting times. Point of this segment was we are losing the data game, and as you said, we've got to we've got to really do some deep dive research on what's happening out there in terms of uh, upward mobility, you know, our role in creating pathways to the middle class. We've got to get back to basics on what the role of this segment of the economy means to the overall economy, because right now we're kind of stuck uh, in, in, in the data wars. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. Mr. Cole, let's start with wages. Uh, the great state of Connecticut, it's a, one of the big bills of the year that we're watching the tip credit elimination legislation pending. What's going on? Advanced out of committee 8-4, now headed to the full Senate for consideration. This is the proving ground. We knew it was going to go through committee. So this is, uh, this is where the fight will be enjoined. So operators need to stay tuned in to what the Connecticut Restaurant Association tells you to do, when and where to engage. Um, that's going to be important in the coming days and weeks here. Yeah, all eyes are kind of on Colorado as the seminal venue for a very important scheduling debate. 
Connecticut is the seminal venue right now for this very important two credit elimination uh, uh, debate that will have tentacles into other other legislatures across the country. Franklin, just down I-95, my home state of Maryland, one of the four M's, we thought we had a, 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 a tip credit elimination threat, and it looks like it's subsided. Yeah, there's been a robust debate going on in Maryland, kind of similar to what's going on in New York as to what's in and out and you know what this what this minimum wage package looks like. And so um, elimination of the tip credit failed to make the legislative crossover deadline, which means it's procedurally dead, but nothing's ever pr- totally dead until, you know, things are gaveled out at, at, for the end of session. So it could jump back up as an amendment to another bill or something like that. So it's time for celebration, but maybe not completely popping the champagne cork. So legislation that would expedite their the minimum wage there to 2024, $15 an hour to 2024 instead of 2025 is moving along. And then the governor there wants to index uh, the wage to inflation, similar to what Hochul wants to do in, in New York. So they're still hashing out some stuff. There's still discussions. Other amendments could pop into that minimum wage package. It'll be important to keep an eye on to make sure that the tip credit and other more harmful items stay out. And Franklin, just point of clarification, just very important. And they don't drink champagne in in Maryland to celebrate. They they have nat, natty bow beer and, and, and a bushel of crabs. That's how Marylanders celebrate. No champagne in Maryland. Franklin, we alluded to uh, this segment during when we talked about Starbucks, but Disney uh, looks like thirty two thousand workers at Disney uh, in Florida. This is Disney World in Florida. Uh, looks like they've ratified a new union contract. Talk about the, the component parts of that contract. This is important to the overall job market. 37% uh, pay raise, um, so up to $18 an hour, and it's going to be rising to $20 an hour by 2026. Universal uh, announced some weeks ago, this has been under negotiation with the unions for some time. Universal got out ahead of this, um, non-unionized, and announced some weeks ago. I'm pretty sure it was $18 an hour starting pay. So... You know, the, the market was already the Orlando hospitality market was already moving ahead of this announcement. And, you know, once Disney and Universal go to 18, that's that's it. That's the that's that's the market. So, yeah, that's I mean, to our earlier com- to the earlier conversation, that ain't that far from 20. And, uh, you know, we're down here in Orlando, Florida. So doesn't that does it undermine what Starbucks is, you know, with the Starbucks union? You know, does it undermine their twenty and north of twenty dollar demands, or have they have they baked in some wiggle room to negotiate down to an eighteen dollar? You know, yeah, I, I think that's right. And you know, look, they're just putting out a national marker too. I, I think they will end up negotiating out on a much more regional basis too, if not individual store basis. So they're just putting down kind of a, a national marker at twenty. But I suspect that this contracts will look very different based on region but yeah and frankly we talked about how colorado is kind of the, the the big venue for scheduling connecticut the big venue for tip credit elimination the big paid leave bill uh we've been watching uh this session is in minnesota and while no legislative activity happened this week certainly the the the, the supporters turned up the volume at the state house Supporters turned up the volume in the state house, and the legislative budget office released the price tag for this potential program, six hundred sixty-eight million. Which you know, opponents 
you know, crowd foul pretty quickly that, you know, this is unaffordable. So something is basically going to get over the finish line here is what it's looking like at this juncture. It's a question of what is included in there to get the price tag to where everybody's comfortable with it. And so that's where kind of the negotiations are settling right now. What they've been shooting for, what advocates are hoping for is 12 weeks of paid family leave with an additional 12 weeks of paid sick leave to make everybody comfortable the governor and legislative leadership may come off of that and we may end up with a more modest package. But the way the energy is going around this, I think we're going to end up with something. The employer community has not really opposed it like we've seen in other states, you know, because this is a, a split, the cost is split between the employer and the, and the employee. So it'll be interesting. We'll keep watching. We'll see where it lands. Franklin, your fellow North Carolinian, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, the chair of the House Education Labor Committee, uh, you know, she's been a stalwart supporter of our industry, a stalwart supplier, uh, empl- uh, supporter of the joint, of the franchise business model. This week, she upped the game. She issued a subpoena. Her committee issued a subpoena to the NLRB. What's going on there? Yep. Um, and we kind of quickly referenced in the earlier the earlier conversation, but she issued a subpoena to NLRB officials over the way that they have mistreated Starbucks, the company, or favored the union over uh, Starbucks, the company. So they've, they've sent this over, they've shipped it out to the chairman and to the general counsel, but they're really targeting, um, and I don't have the names in front of me, it, it doesn't really matter that much what the names are, but they're really targeting some low-level officials that were involved in some very specific elections. So they they feel as if these low-level officials made some some calls or, or favor the union. And anyway, it's this is going to be interesting. This is the split screen we'll have in DC next week. Yeah, and it appears that, that somebody within the NLRB you know, apparatus thought maybe there was some merit to uh, to Starbucks complaints, and they were over overruled. And so the, they're subpoenaing, trying to get that correspondence, see what see what really unfolded there. So uh, super uh, super interesting times at the NLRB. Let's stay with the, with that agency. Jennifer Bruzo, the general counsel of Franklin, sent out a memo out to the field saying, look, guys, I told you a couple, couple months ago, bring me, bring me some fresh meat. Bring me some, bring me some cases. And she kind of cracked the whip this week and said, you haven't brought me enough. Bring me more double down. What's going on? I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, she essentially sent out a memo saying, I'm fishing for cases to overturn precedents. Send me some cases that, you know, are anti-worker so that we can we can flip over these these existing precedents and establish new precedents that favor our our view of the world. That is bold, my friend. And obviously it's going to be problematic for the employer community. But I mean, fishing for cases anyway. Yeah, that's what happened this week, Joe. It's unreal, man. Unreal. She, she basically chastised her own group for not bringing enough fodder. Uh, to the home office, kind of, kind of interesting, Mr. Cole. In, in the legislative process, usually a, a bill is introduced the way the author wants it. It's kind of the high water mark, and it gets amended and watered down through the process and compromised. And what comes out of the other end is usually somewhat different than what what starts the process. In, in Illinois, 
this week. They have, they've had a pay transparency bill pending for some time now. It was heavily amended this week, and it, it appears it got beefier. Uh, it got uh, more stringent. Uh, Mr. Coy, what, what is going on in, in Illinois? Well, we, we talked about this in a lot of jurisdictions over the years, but yeah, it's pay transparency. What it got amended in was uh, wage, salary, salary range, general description of benefits. That all has to be posted. Announce, post, or otherwise make known all opportunities for promotion to all current employees no later than the same calendar date that the employer makes an external job posting. Um, and it would attach a bunch of civil penalties to this. So this is just part of this kind of ongoing push in the pay transparency space. Uh, Franklin, switching to California, we've been talking about this food handler legislation. It's obvious reaction to the New York Times piece a few weeks ago regarding the Serve Safe program. It actually uh, made it out of a Senate committee this week on its path. Yep. And it, it's got a long path. But yeah, that's a Senate committee advanced it. This is basically requiring the Department of Public Health to put together a list of all certified food handling programs and make a, make it available on its website. So I, we'll continue to see. We'll continue to talk about this. This is an industry issue. And we'll, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this pops up in other places as well. Franklin, let's move on to sustainability. Um, this week, uh, as expected, President Biden vetoed his first veto in office, that uh, congressional resolution on ESG. To remind the audience, remind our listeners what happened. Well, Congress, including some moderate Democrats, voted to enact the uh, Congressional Review Act, I think it was. Um, essentially, they need a simple majority vote to prevent this from going into effect. They did that. The, the president is vetoing it. So this will allow for plan managers to consider ESG factors when making investments. This is an issue that's not going away. Governor DeSantis announced a coalition of 18 Republican governors pushing back on ESG just this last week as well. So we've got a ton of activity at the at the state level on this issue. And House Republicans are also uh, Congressman Patrick McHenry and the, uh, the Financial Services Committee are, is also beating the drum on this, um, as well as other many other members. So this is an issue that this little episode is done, but this issue is not going away. And lastly, Mr. Coley, uh, going back to Illinois, uh, that is a state that has traditionally had, if not the worst, some of the worst budget deficits ever. And they're usually mired in debt and it's been you know, kind of generational debt. And they find themselves in a rare moment of surplus and the governor's just found a, a a bunch of extra money under the seat cushions and throwing them out to the restaurant industry. What's going on? Yeah, it's uh, fifty million dollars, and I mean, I, I'm kind of surprised by this, to be honest with you. But um, you know, we had said for some time coming out of the pandemic that there was all this federal cash that was falling down, and you know, somewhat delayed in kind of getting to states and localities, and there were opportunities for relief um, at the state and local level, even though the federal programs had kind of run their course. This is an example of that. It's obviously later than, you know, we, we kind of quit paying attention to or having discussions around this, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's been a number of local state and local programs. Um, and this is just one more, probably one of the last ones I would suspect. 
So if you've already gotten money from the state in one of these relief programs, you're not eligible for this. But if you haven't, you are. And regardless of whether you took any federal money for the Paycheck Protection or the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, you are eligible for these funds. So it's here we are in 2023 and we're still handing out uh, restaurant relief funds in, in, in especially a state like Illinois, which is always strapped for cash. So super interesting. Uh, you know, the, the story never ends. Uh, another scorecard this week, and we'll have one for you next week. Well, Mr. Coley, as, as we tape this on March the 24th, we are a month away from one of the best restaurant industry gatherings, uh, a, a, a must a must attend event uh, on the restaurant industry calendar, the Restaurant Leadership Conference in Phoenix. Uh, at April, what is it, 16th and 19th, I think, Mr. Coley. Will you be attending the Restaurant Leadership Conference? I will, and I will be packing my my running shoes because, man, I, I love a good, a good hike up South Mountain or one of the other uh, trails in and around the Phoenix area. So um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing everyone there and, and seeing you potentially up on stage, my friend. I have a little magic act, you know, with the saw and the, and the woman in the coffin and the box and everything and, you know, kind of doing our thing. But no, we'll, you and I will be participating in a, in a panel there. It's a great gathering. Going through the, uh, the attendance uh, list yesterday, it is a who's who of the restaurant industry. So mark your calendars for this coming April, uh, Phoenix Restaurant Leadership Conference, be there or be square. And on that note, we'll wrap up the pod for this week. and. We'll have another one for you next week. Until then, stay safe and stay informed.